Today, we are continuing our series in Matthew's Gospel. We're in the middle of chapter 2, starting at verse 13, and Jane is going to read the passage for us. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realised that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. This is one of those passages that you can easily skip over. At first reading, it seems to be just a fill-in between the visit of the three kings, which Wendy spoke about last week, and the narrative about John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus, which James will talk to us about next week. But when you come to stop and think about it, there's rather more to this passage than first meets the eye. Firstly, let's just put it in context. On one side we have Joseph, married to Mary, and together looking after the baby Jesus. And on the other, we have King Herod I. Now, although at this stage he's only a baby, we need to remember who Jesus actually is. The Bible tells us that God created the world with all the fish, birds and animals, and finally he created men and women to rule over this world. We are loved by God. We are the pinnacle of his creation and made in God's own image. However, we rebelled, which resulted in our separation from God and made us destined for eternity in hell. But God loves us so much that he set up the most amazing rescue plan. He himself became a human being, totally God and yet also totally human. And it will be this infant Jesus who Joseph is looking after, who, when he becomes an adult, will be God's instrument for the salvation of the entirety of humankind. Jesus will die on the cross and all who turn to him in repentance for their rebellion against God will be pardoned and have eternity in a loving relationship with God. So this baby Jesus is the key player in God's rescue plan. All the prophets and godly leaders who had gone before pale into insignificance beside Jesus. And on the other side we have King Herod. 
He is the ruler of Judea, a pretty insignificant area of land, a bit less than 100 miles long and a bit wider than 30 miles wide at its widest points. And this Herod is trying to kill Jesus. Now, if I were writing this story, the next thing we would learn is that fire came down from heaven and demolished Herod, his palace, and most of surrounding Jerusalem, as happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Or that as Herod stretched out his arm to order his soldiers to go to murder the babies of Bethlehem, his arm withered and fell limp, as happened to King Jeroboam in the Old Testament. Or an angel of the Lord struck him down, he was eaten by worms and died, as happened to Herod's grandson, Herod Agrippa. But actually what happens is the complete reverse. An angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and tells him to get up and flee to Egypt. Here is Almighty God fleeing for his earthly life from some tin-pot tyrant. But as God explained to the prophet Isaiah, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, God doesn't necessarily do things in the way we might expect him to do things. And we humans have to accept that we will never totally understand the ways of God. But our task is not to try to understand why God is doing things in a particular way. Our task is to trust him. And we trust him because we know that God is ultimately the one in control. He will bring this world to an end at a time of his choosing, and he will have the last word. And he loves each one of us and has our true best interests at heart. God did not send his son Jesus to die for us, simply then to abandon us. As the prophet Nahum declared, The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. This year, 2020, has proved to be a year of tumult and shaking. Just when it looked as though COVID-19 was waning, it flares up again. And once again, many people are suffering major disruptions to their work, or to their education and to their lives in general. And let's be honest, it's very easy to become afraid. But is it not precisely at times like these that our trust in God becomes so important? We may not understand why God has allowed the world to be afflicted by COVID-19, but we do know that our God is ultimately in control. We also know that our God has been warning us, certainly since 2015, that a time of shaking is coming. And this shaking is intended to shake away the dross and purify Jesus' church. But trusting in times like these can be challenging. As someone once joked, why trust God when you can panic instead? So let me share with you an illustration which I found helpful. Napoleon Bonaparte, the great French leader, had a nephew, Louis Napoleon, who was elected President of the French Republic in 1848. Under the then French Constitution, he could only serve one four-year term as President. So when his term came to an end, he simply seized power in a coup and created himself Emperor Napoleon III. Now, as Emperor, he thought he ought to have a wife to carry on his dynasty. 
But perhaps not surprisingly, the royal houses of Europe were not keen to marry off their princesses to this upstart. So eventually he had to settle for Eugenie, who, whilst the daughter of a Spanish nobleman, was not of royal birth, and they married in 1853. Two years later, in 1855, Queen Victoria came to Paris on a state visit. After the national anthems had been played, Queen Victoria sat down. But Eugenie, before she sat down, first looked behind her to check that there was a chair there. Queen Victoria just knew that there would be a chair there. She didn't need to look to check. Why did Queen Victoria trust that there was a chair behind her? Well, she was of royal birth and by the time of her state visit to Paris had been queen for 18 years. Every time she sat down, there was a chair to sit on. Or some footman would have spent the rest of his days breaking rocks in Dartmoor Prison. On the other hand, Eugenie was not born into a royal house, and she'd only been Empress of France for two years. She was young, and she was learning. It seems to me that trusting in God is not something that comes naturally to most of us, and it is a skill that we need to learn and develop. I'm not a particularly good skier, but I remember an instructor once telling me that in, to improve my skiing, I needed to ski just a little bit outside my comfort zone, slightly faster than I would want to ski, and on slopes a bit more challenging than I was comfortable with. Not ridiculously difficult slopes, just a bit more than I was used to. And it seems to me that we need to approach trusting in God in the same way. We need to take steps that put us just that bit outside our comfort zone. For example, we might say to ourselves, Lord, if I go up to this person and offer to pray for them to be healed, what happens if they're not healed? I'll look silly. But nevertheless, Lord, I'll take a risk and trust you. Or perhaps, Lord, my budget hardly balances as it is. If I give £50 towards feeding the homeless, how am I going to make ends meet? But Lord, nevertheless, I'll do it and trust you work it out. Not, you know, Lord, I'm going to give away my entire year's salary and trust you to provide. You may eventually develop the trust in God that enables you to do that. After all, George Muller, and we're sitting just next to his orphanages here, trusted God entirely for the money necessary to run those orphanages. But all we need to start with is small steps of trust. And today's passage gives us a very good example of what developed trust can look like. In verse 13, we're told that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and told him to go to Egypt. And then verse 14 records, So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. Joseph did not question God. He didn't say, But God, Jesus is your son. I don't need to go to Egypt. I'm sure you'll look after him here. He obeyed. He got up in the middle of the night and left. To me, that shows real trust. So in conclusion, firstly, we're in a time where God is allowing us to be shaken so that we can be purified. Secondly, at times like these, we need to remember that God doesn't always act in the way we expect. But our task is not to try to understand the ways of God, but to deepen our trust in God himself. 
Thirdly, such trust grows from practice. As we learn to trust in small things, so we gradually are able to trust in larger things. And thus the question for all of us today is, are we each taking active steps to learn more and more to trust God?